And if you want to open your Bible to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 19 through 22 this morning. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. All right, I'll, we'll read and then I'll give some opening comments and we can pray. Verse 19. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So this morning I want to look at verse 19 in particular and this imperative command not to quench the Spirit. And as part of that, we'll be looking at the whole realm of subjective experiences in the Christian life. And I know there are believers, even in this church, who may struggle with subjective experiences. They may be off balance with them. They may struggle with their emotions. And particularly, the second half of this message should be very helpful to you. But the reality is, in our circles, when you look at the books that are written and the documentaries being produced, all of the conferences being held, the discernment ministries, we have a pretty much endless stream of warnings against subjective experiences and counterfeits and abuse of spiritual gifts. And, of course, many of those warnings are very valid and very much needed in our day. But part of that movement has gone beyond Scripture and what Scripture speaks on these matters and has become off balance and landed in another ditch, in this ditch of quenching the Spirit. And the messages coming out of that ditch, I believe, can affect us much more than we realize. And so today, what I want to do is look at, at Scripture, at this infallible canon of Scripture, which is our rule, our measuring stick. It's the highest and supreme authority on every matter of which it speaks. And I want to look particularly at what it says in regards to being guarded against errors that come by way of prophecy and subjective experiences, but doing so without quenching the Spirit. So let's pray, brethren. Lord, we thank you for your goodness this morning, Lord. We thank you. You've left us with your word, Lord, as this infallible rule, Lord, to speak into our lives and give us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And we, we thank you. We left you with your spirit, Lord. Lord, we thank you for your spirit. I pray you help me by your spirit to teach your word clearly, Lord. Lord, I pray that you'd help the brethren to hear it, that there'd be no misunderstandings, God, but that we would be in total agreement with what your word speaks, God, your infallible, eternal word. I pray you bless us this morning. We thank you that we can gather here and, and read your word and that you've brought us near through the blood of Christ. And I, I ask, Lord, that you be glorified, that we could, we could fulfill the purposes that you've left us on this earth for, Lord, to build the church and advance your gospel, Lord, and that you minister to us through this word this morning towards that end in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, now you can stay in 1 Thessalonians, but I wanted to lay a little bit of groundwork before we get into that verse. And 
specifically on what our relationship with the Holy Spirit as believers looks like. Now, the Holy Spirit affects every part of our life and our walk with Christ and our, our faith, but specifically, I wanted to look at one aspect of this that's relevant to our text this morning, and the first point on that is that every regenerate believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit. The Scripture tells us that repeatedly in numerous places. And one place that we read that is when Paul is correcting sin in the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 6.19, he says to them, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? So if someone were genuinely converted at Haven for Hope yesterday, this morning the reality is they are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They may have very little understanding of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, but their lack of understanding does not change the reality that's been established by God that every regenerate believer is in fact indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And likewise, every regenerate believer, whether they sense or feel the Spirit's presence, that does not change reality either. Whether you sense the Spirit's presence this morning or don't sense the Spirit's presence, it doesn't change the reality of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and that our feelings do not determine our standing before God. Our standing before God is determined by the merits of Jesus Christ exclusively. So, with that established, We do want to note that we repeatedly see in Scripture this language of being filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's often accompanied by an experience or an ability to better exalt Christ, build up the church, and spread the gospel. Just a couple of quick examples of that in Acts 2-4 on the day of Pentecost. Peter and the other believers, it says they were together and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Again, in Acts 4.31, Peter and John with their companions, it says, when they had prayed, that the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the Word of God with boldness. And we don't just see this filled with the Holy Spirit in this type of language descriptively, we also see it instructively, in Ephesians 5.18, we see an imperative, do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And elsewhere in Scripture, we're told to pray in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, and these instructions, like I said, are throughout Scripture. And I wanted to add one, one similar thing Paul says to the church in Corinth. He tells them to pursue love, and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, back here in our text, we're instructed not to quench the Spirit. So again, every regenerate believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but our relationship with the Holy Spirit, according to Scripture, is not one that's passive. We're to have acknowledgement of these imperatives and in a proper way, in some sense, we are to pursue or be active in our relationship with the Spirit. 
which we'll see. So this quenching the Spirit, though, to get us where we're at, God's Word says we can quench the Spirit. Now, in Ephesians, we read we can grieve the Spirit. We're warned against that, grieving the Spirit by various types of things, sins of thought, sins of our speech, sins of omission and commission. But this quenching the Spirit is used in a more limited scope here in 1 Thessalonians. It's speaking to our being uncooperative with the Holy Spirit in his desires to win the lost or his work to win the lost and his work in building up the church. And, of course, we do not want to do that. So this morning I want to start by looking at three or four common ways we can quench the Holy Spirit and then we'll look at ways we can safeguard ourselves against excesses and counterfeits of the Holy Spirit as well. That's why I chose this text. It's a, it's a really balanced message. But the first way that we would quench the Spirit is in verse 20. Paul, Paul gives us it contextually. 520, 1 Thessalonians 5.20 says, Do not despise prophecies. Now, I know the issue of prophecy is very delicate. If you studied it, it's extremely nuanced, and it would require a whole message of its own to deal with. So what I, just for the sake of brevity and for the sake of misunderstanding, I'm going to give one definition, and I'm going to give one disclaimer, and then we're just going to let Scripture speak this morning. So my definition of prophecy is taken from Thayer's Greek lexicon, and it says this, discourse emanating from divine inspiration and declaring the purposes of God, whether by reproving and admonishing the wicked or comforting the afflicted or revealing things hidden, especially by foretelling future events. That's our definition from theirs, and here's my disclaimer. Any alluding to modern-day prophecy in this message is limited to the types of things that we see in godly Reformed church history, things that we see with the Scottish Presbyterians being able to accurately foresee future events and prophesy of these things that came to pass, and things we see even in the life of Charles Spurgeon, where he repeatedly revealed the secrets of men's hearts by way of the Spirit to the point that men were repeatedly converted by him calling out specific sins in their lives that no one else could have known about. Now, Spurgeon called this being moved by the Spirit. He didn't call it prophecy, but I, we're including this in our definition, this type of being moved by the Spirit. But the Scottish, they did use the term prophecy. They weren't afraid to use that biblical term. So I mention all this not because I need the names or the authority of these men with my message because this, this text actually preaches itself if you just let it speak with its imperatives. But I mention it for the sake of those out there out here who may have a stumbling block just at the very mention of this term prophecy because of all of the foolishness and the error and the falsehood that goes on out there in that name. I am by no means, by no means am I supporting what goes on out there in the name of prophecy, and nor am I suggesting that there exists today that unique gift and ability by which the apostles penned these infallible scriptures 
The canon is closed once and for all. And that's the end of my disclaimer. And I trust that you can keep that in mind as we move through this message. So back to our text. Do not despise prophecy. Despising means to reject something as worthless. And the letter doesn't tell us why these believers would be despising prophecy or what prompted Paul to write this to them. There's some, there's some ideas out there on it, but as I was looking at this, I was thinking if we just look at the church in Corinth and their abuse and the mess that they made of that gift in their church, it's not difficult to see why we'd want to despise prophecy, and more so in our day when you know what's going on out there, some of us with our backgrounds, it, it's pretty reasonable for us. It's not biblical, but it's pretty reasonable to just reject prophecy flat out. But here Paul comes in either way, and he explicitly instructs his church not to do that, and that's perfectly in line with his instruction to the church in Rome to use this gift and perfectly in line with his instructions after correcting the Corinthians, he tells them, he ends his correction by telling them to earnestly desire to prophesy, but he tells them to do so in a decent and an orderly way. Why? Because genuine spiritual gifts are a means given to build up the church and advance the gospel. And Paul says, don't toss out what could be genuine with the counterfeits. Scripture instructs us not to do that. Now, it does instruct us to test everything, and we'll look at that when we get to verses 21 and 22. But again, we're just looking at a way that we can quench the spirit by despising a spiritual gift. And this goes well beyond prophecy. It goes for any genuine spiritual gift, not just a less normative one. Every manifestation of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians 12, is sovereignly distributed according to his will, and it is indeed a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. That's the clear teaching of Scripture on that. Now, I have a friend, his wife has visited here before. He's back in Detroit. About a month after he got saved, he got sucked into a cult. And his family was heavily abused by this false teacher and the false teaching in that cult. And him and I became friends right when he had gotten out of the cult. So I figured I'd be helpful to him. I started giving him John Piper messages to listen to, just some balanced Christian teaching. And he eventually asked me to stop and said he wasn't listening to the messages and nor would he because he wouldn't allow himself to be led astray by another false teacher, that the teachings of man had led him astray once and he would no longer listen to teaching. He would just read the Bible for himself. He's, he's grown past that. He's a member of an evangelical church today. But you see what he did there? His, his suffering under this abuse had so affected him that he was rejecting or despising the gift of teaching. And although that's, that's a bit novel, you can see the way that he overreacted there. And I'll say I've met plenty of people who take that even further. Some out there, lone rangers usually, or those in a fringe corner of the house church movement, they basically have a doctrine that says the gift of teaching has ceased, that it's no longer needed because we have the Holy Spirit to lead us into all truth, and we have the infallible canon of Scripture, and so therefore we just read our Bibles ourselves, and the gift of teaching is irrelevant to us today. And of course we see that's completely foolish. 
that's a wrong interpretation of Scripture, that men grossly overreact and end up in ditches. But I, I want us to consider that and just take that to heart in this whole realm of subjective leadings this morning. So the first way we can quench the Spirit is despising spiritual gifts, and usually in our circles it's these less normative or heavily abused and counterfeited spiritual gifts. But the second way, and just you can stay put again, we'll all turn somewhere in a bit. The second way to quench the Spirit is by neglecting our own known gifting. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.14, he said, Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them. And he goes on in 2 Timothy 1.6 and he tells him, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear but of power and love and self-control. And you can see that similar image. Paul tells his church in Thessalonica, don't, don't quench that flame of the spirit. And here he's telling Timothy, fan up that flame of the Spirit using your spiritual gift, which was deposited into you, and using it to win the lost and build up the church. Now, again, we want to take this to heart because it applies to much more than Timothy's teaching and evangelistic gifts. It applies to the gifts of exhortation, to helps, to exceptional generosity, whatever gifts there are in the Holy Spirit. They're given to us by God, and I've shared it before, even if you don't know your gifting, you have general calls in Scripture to serve and love the brethren in whatever way you can and to serve and love and win the lost in whatever ways you can. And that in itself would be a way you could stir up that flame in you just by simply being active with whatever you have, even if it's an unknown gifting at this point. But for those here especially who have a known gifting, Brethren have pointed it out to you. The elders maybe have pointed it out to you. This is a very serious matter to neglect that gifting. Paul says you're quenching the Spirit, that you're opposing the work of the Holy Spirit in you to build up the church or to win the lost. And of course, Scripture tells us don't do that, don't treat that lightly, and don't recognize a known gift. Rather, fan it into flame, use it for the edification of the saints and the advancement of the gospel. And this will lead me to my next point. At the, at the end of that second verse I read from Paul to Timothy, he said, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So we can quench the spirit by despising a spiritual gift. We can quench the spirit by neglecting our own giftings. And we can neglect this, we can quench the spirit by approaching these matters with an unbiblical fear rather than a scripturally informed faith. And we want to make sure that our views on this are in fact informed by scripture and not reactionary or some wrong fear of subjective things or the fear of man. Because there's well-meaning voices out there They'll accuse you of being in error simply for obeying these imperatives of Scripture. Carefully, cautiously, balancedly, it doesn't matter. Just obeying these commands of Scripture, they'll consider you in error, and they're not silent in their opposition of those who step outside of their spirit-quenching ditch and by genuine faith 
would pursue any of these things. So there can be a subtle fear of man, of what others in our circle think, even if what they think is unbiblical and beyond what's written. And there can be a subtle fear put in us by all of the air we see out there that gives us an unbiblical view of these matters. Now, if we could all turn to Acts chapter 4, I want to look at something together. Acts chapter 4, and we'll read verses 29 through verse 31. And backstory is, as you're still turning, uh, the apostles, they've gotten out of, they've been released, they were being detained by the religious authorities, told not to speak anymore about Christ, and they come back and they join their companions, and we're going to join them mid-prayer in their prayer meeting they had after they were all reunited in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And what I wanted to do is to think about and just ask ourselves what our response would be to hearing someone pray a prayer like that, asking for signs and wonders in evangelism. Would we automatically assume they're off balance, that they're diminishing the gospel, that they don't understand that it's the gospel which is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes? Would we maybe need to remind them that the greatest miracle is regeneration just because we assume they don't understand that because they would dare to mention something like this that's outside of our comfort zone? Would we even assume they're like that evil and adulterous generation that Jesus spoke of that seeks after signs? Would we misapply the words of Christ to these apostles and disciples who did pray for signs. And, I mean, generally, what's our response when we hear someone pray like that or even when you hear a message like this? Is it automatically to assume that the message is off balance, that there's something wrong, that there's something that we put our hand out and we begin to reject a message, however scriptural it is, or a prayer, however scriptural it is, because I think our response to these things is indicative of how likely we are to be quenching the Spirit. Now, God's response to this was to shake the place, to fill them with the Holy Spirit, so they could continue to go out and preach the Word of God with boldness. That's God's response. And of course, these disciples were not sign seekers. They weren't exalting gifts and signs and wonders above the saving power of the gospel, above the glory of Christ, any more than we're minimizing the gospel by taking granola bars and water down to Haven for hope, okay? You wouldn't look at someone taking food to the homeless and accuse them of preaching a social justice gospel. You would be able to easily determine by the message they're preaching that they're using those as biblical means to love people and to create an opening to share the gospel. And the same way these early disciples, those signs and wonders were simply a biblical means for them to have an opening and an attestation to the true message of the gospel, which of course is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Now I know 
There's an idea out there that says, yes, that's only for the first century, and I'll only say one thing in response to that. According to Scripture, it's for when God sovereignly chooses it to be. For whenever God sovereignly chooses it to be, and we don't need to go back 2,000 years to see God sovereignly choosing to do that. Less than 100 years ago, in the Hebrides, an elderly sister, two of them, had a prayer meeting in their cabin that went until 3 a.m. in the morning, and God came and visited them and gave one of the sisters a prophetic vision of their dead, empty church being filled with young people. This is 100 years ago. It's verifiable. There's audio recordings of, of Duncan Campbell you can listen to. And the elders and the deacons and the men of the church were convinced that that prophetic vision was indeed from God, and they set themselves to praying. And if you're familiar with the story, as they were praying in a barn, God came down and he met them and he shook that land and he emptied the bars and he, he brought all these young people into the church. He filled the churches. The land was gripped with the presence of God and the gospel went forth, souls were saved, and Jesus Christ was glorified. And if God were to stir up a genuine faith or a genuine gifting in our church like that, we'd have no right biblically to quench it. Could you imagine that? Some of the reform guys being, being there in that church whenever the sister says, I had a vision of God as we were in prayer, laboring in prayer, filling this church, God's going to move. And in, instead of the men saying, this, this is of God, with testing this sister, which we'll look at the way they could have tested her shortly, that they said, no, God, God doesn't do this. This is clearly not from God. Uh, let's just go about our Sunday Christianity as it is. We're people of the word, right? Can you imagine people doing that? And can you imagine the devastating effect that could have had in that time period? So brethren, we're going to see in verse 21 and 22, we need to be careful and biblically balanced in these matters but we don't want to confuse that for being double-minded. Praying to God to move, to move on the east side, to move in our city, to move in our families on one hand, and quenching the Spirit through our unbiblical approach to these things on the other hand. That's not balance, that's double-mindedness, and we would want to avoid that according to the Apostle Paul. It's not the type of balance that we're after. Okay, one, one last way we can quench the Spirit through pride and self-promotion. Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, said he will bear witness about me, about Christ. That's in John 15. He's not here to bear witness about us, what spiritual people we are, about our church. He's here to bear witness to Christ. And again, that's how the early church viewed everything from spiritual gifts to signs and wonders, pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ, pointing to his saving power, pointing to his majesty, and we need to guard our hearts in our serving, whether in evangelism, in the church, in our giftings, that we are not mixing our service to God with selfish ambition. Selfish ambition, desiring some of the glory that's meant exclusively for Christ will grieve the Spirit. God resists the proud, and God gives grace to the humble. And Scripture tells us, do not quench the Spirit, but instead test everything, to judge these things rightly, and thankfully, Scripture gives us the proper means to actually judge these things rightly. Scripture says, don't quench it, test it, and it gives us the means to test it. Now, invert back in 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 21 
and 22. The scripture reads, But test everything, hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. So what I want to do is look at some biblical ways, a few, depending how much time I, I have, and how they can protect us from all of the error and the falsehood that can come in in all of these subjective leadings, which I'm just including prophecy with that. And you can also largely apply this to testing teaching as well. So you remember Paul commended the Bereans for testing his words against the scriptures. Paul said that's commendable. John said to test the spirits. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. Not every spirit is from God. And here Paul tells us, test everything. And when he says to test everything, he does not mean to go out on YouTube and look for the latest 2024 so-called prophecies and test them and decide if they're true or not. He's talking about things that providentially come into our lives, into our lives personally or the midst of the local church. And he's, Scripture is going to offer us the way to test those things. Again, we're not to go out turning over rocks, looking for things to test and judge. We're to deal with our lives in the local church and it is good, of course, to know what's going on out there in Christianity, but it's become a business for some to provide endless hours of entertainment in the form of showing charismatic excess. It operates under the banner of discernment, but it just gives us a means to mock people, to self-exalt ourselves that we're not like those foolish people and that in itself will lead you into that ditch of quenching the spirit we're not called to go out and do those things we're called to deal with life in the local church which i'll talk on in a moment but the the first and most obvious way to test everything is against the scriptures yeah against the scriptures in first corinthians 14 when uh, I'll, just, I'll just read it. In 1 Corinthians 14, when Paul actually finishes correcting their error and their abuse in that church in regards to the very gift of prophecy and the nuances of these abuses between men and women in the church, in 1437, he says this, If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So think about this. Even back then, prophecy, subjective leadings, any thoughts anyone had in the church in any of these matters, the members of the church, everything was to be tested against Paul's authority, against Scripture as it was, even while Scripture was still being penned. Before the canon was closed, it's always been the case that everything is to be tested against the scriptures. Now, of course, God's closed it once for all, and it's even more so for us having this whole counsel of the word of God, the case, but again, it's the first rule, it's obvious. The Holy Spirit authored the scriptures, so when somebody says the Holy Spirit is telling them something contrary to the scriptures, you, of course, automatically know that it is false. The Thessalonians understood this earlier on in the letter in chapter 2. Paul, Paul told them, he reminded them that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. So again, we're to 
test everything against the Scriptures. The Thessalonians were equipped to test things against the Scriptures. They recognized that Paul's words were Scripture as it is, and we are too. Now, the second testing method we have, if you recall, Jesus said, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. And Jesus goes on to tell us the fruits of false prophets, which is they're lawless. They're lawless people. They're soft on sin. They're soft on the gospel. They live loose lives. They claim to have revelations from God, and yet their lives show, the fruit of their lives show that they are not truly walking with Christ. And now, this is an additional safeguard to testing we have, but there are certain cases where certain types of subjective leadings and prophecies, they can't be tested against the Scriptures. And I'm going to have you turn again to Acts chapter 11, and I want to look at an example of a prophecy that could not be tested against the Scriptures but somehow the early Christians were able to determine was true. Acts 11 at verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. And so the scripture here does not tell us how these disciples determined to send this relief, which obviously implies they determined it was a true prophecy if they're going to send relief. Some suggest that Paul and Barnabas had a spiritual ability to accurately discern all of these things, and that may or may not be the case, but our text doesn't say that. But Luke does give us a clue a little bit earlier in this chapter of Acts. He tells us that Barnabas had been sent to the church in Antioch from Jerusalem, the same place where Agabus and these other prophets came from. And Paul is there, and he's already visited the elders in Jerusalem, the apostles, and they have an established relationship with that local church through the brethren and through the leadership. And you see, Agabus is with other men. We at least can see by the text he is not a lone ranger. By these relationships, his fruit, his doctrine, his character, his gifting, they could all be validated with the group of believers he was accountable to. And in fact, Paul and Barnabas, this is very telling as well, they take the offering to the hands of the elders. Agabus did not ask for the money. He wasn't coming asking for money, declaring some prophecy. He wasn't like that guy on YouTube who rehashes the failed prophecy about the coming blood moon every year. And every year it doesn't happen. And guys like that may be living secret lives as drunkards and adulterers, and no one would ever know, but people gullibly send him money to continue his prophetic ministry. Agabus was not like that. He's a known person. His fruit, his doctrine, his character, and his gifting could be verified by the elders, by the apostles. 
And so, brethren, we want to examine the fruit of anyone speaking an alleged prophecy, and we want to examine our own subjective leadings by our fruit. If we're in a weak place spiritually and, and we think God's giving us special revelation and we're not living in the Word, that, that'd be a good cause to believe God's not telling you anything and leading you anything other than to read the Word of God. But we want to be very mindful of this testing of fruit in addition to the test of Scripture. Now, I, I alluded to this earlier, and I think this is often the most underemphasized aspect of testing our subjective leadings and others' professed spiritual giftings. And it's a balanced and accountable Christian life lived in context of the local church. Now, if... Now, just stay where you're at. We see in Acts repeatedly, we see it repeated through the scriptures as well, but in Acts it says the early disciples were continuing steadfast or devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. They had this normal, Christ-centered Christian life that would be able to identify them through the long term of their life. These are things that are continuous through the Christian life. And if a certain gift or our own subjective leadings are blown up out of proportion to the normal means, the normal graces of the Christian life, then it's out of balance and it's disorderly and it's a problem. And that is exactly what Paul was handling back in Corinth in the scriptures we were looking at. In fact, in verse 14, 29, he corrects them by saying, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. So did you catch that? Let two or three prophets speak. This most non-normative or exceptional spiritual gift, God himself limits its use. You, you would think it would want to be used all over the place like some of these people purport to do in other, in other circles, but God himself limits that gift so that it's subjective to this normal means, normal means of grace in the Christian life. Now, he never revokes it, I know men have arguments from silence to revoke that gift, but we're here to look at the scriptures today, and Paul tells them to continue to earnestly desire that gift. And the second half of that verse is telling as well. Let the others weigh what is said. I like the way the New King James translated it. It says, let the others judge. And our accountability in the local church to each other is a safeguard from the flippancy we see out there in regards to subjective leadings. When you have brothers, if you start going off in some wrong path with subjective leadings, hopefully you have brothers and sisters here or the elders who are going to find out about it very quickly and it's going to be a means to prevent you from going off into error. So we have this test of scripture, we have this test of fruit, we have this test of a balanced Christian life. We have this test of letting others judge and weigh what we say of keeping our gifts and our leadings, recognizing that they're not the normative part of the Christian life. And those things all in and of themselves act as crucial safeguards. And, you know, when I hear sometimes godly men can go off. We've heard of godly men one time in their life or in one situation who have gone off into error through a subjective leading, whether it was an impression, taking some scripture out of context and running with it, a, a supposed dream from the Lord, and they run off and they cause all kinds of trouble in their lives. 
And I always wonder, the first thing when I hear a story like that is, did they take that to an elder or a trusted brother in the church before they went public or acted on it? Did they bring it to someone who could say, hey, brother, time out. Something doesn't seem right about what you're saying. Let's, let's look at this thing. Let's test it. Calm down before you, before you act on this, before you move and make a decision in your life based on this subjective leading. And brethren, there's great accountability in these means, great protection to keep us not only from going off into error, but from quenching the Spirit. God would not consider us to be quenching the Spirit by following biblically defined means to test all subjective things. He does consider it quenching the Spirit to reject them outright. Okay. So there's other safeguards in Scripture we could mine out. I mentioned those reformed men. They wrote safeguards in how to interpret and accept or reject prophecy. Richard Baxter has something. Martin Lloyd-Jones has extensive work on this. But the thing is, this is the thing, just these three safeguards I mentioned, they would eliminate the vast majority of error that takes place out there if people tested everything against the Scriptures, if they tested the fruit, if they lived in accountability in a balanced Christian life, not allowing things to become out of balance, if they had that biblical accountability, the great majority of what we see out there would be eliminated instantly. And yet, the reality is you can never 100% eliminate any danger that's involved with subjective leadings. And Scripture says, don't reject it, even though that's the case. That's the testimony of Scripture. We know there can always be some mess that occurs, but that mess should be very minor, very confined, a learning opportunity, and it should never blow up into something outrageous like we see out there or that we see in the church of Corinth because Paul says, do not quench the Spirit. Here's the thing. In our circle, quenching the Spirit has no real, visible, immediate consequence. It's a very respectable-looking sin, but it is a sin against the person of the Holy Spirit, against the work of the Holy Spirit, and against His will in advancing the gospel and building the church. And it will have an effect that will be seen in due time. The life of the church will be weakened. We'll lose our power and ability to fulfill the very calling that God gives us and that we may desire to fulfill out in the city and on to the ends of the earth, we don't want to do that. Scripture says, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, desire spiritual gifts, be filled with the spirit. Jesus said, ask, seek, and knock until God responds. Those are positive, imperative commands by Scripture. I didn't make that up some charismatic wacko didn't make those up. God wrote those for us and for our instruction. And that's what Scripture instructs, brethren. There's a right desire for these things. There's a biblical, balanced, safeguarded way to approach this. And I just want to leave you with one quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that sums up this whole topic. He says, The fear of excess is probably leading more people today to quench the spirit than any other single factor. What fools we are even for our own sake. Beloved Christian people, quench not the Spirit. Rather seek Him, make room for Him, make way for Him, yield yourselves to His gracious leadings and dealings. Amen. 
And that's my heart this morning, brethren, that we would have a truly biblically balanced approach to this and that we would not be quenching the workings of God in our midst as we seek to advance the gospel in us and through us. Let's pray. Father, you've given us your infallible word and you've given us these imperatives in your infallible word, Lord. And Lord, we ask that you help us to lay hold of everything your word says to be biblical Christians, even in our pursuing of your dealings with us through your Holy Spirit, Lord. And Lord, I do pray we'd have more dealings, more dealings that the elders would have to step in and get involved with, Lord. More dealings that would advance your gospel, Lord, even, even if there's little messes that come up along the way, God. We ask you to reign and rule in your church according to your will, Lord. I ask that you would do so, that you would keep us balanced in any seeking after those things, but that you would bless us in them, Lord, and advance your gospel and glorify Christ through us. His name we pray. Amen.